It's day three of our seven-day September-October session, um, the 1st of October 2019, and we're um, continuing to read from uh, Meetings with Remarkable Women uh, by Lenore Friedman, uh, the teachings of, of Maureen Stewart. And uh, we left off where um, we were <coughs> reading excerpts of talks she gave um, during a session in California. During her talk today, Maureen speaks about the Tao, the path, the way, the truth of it. How do we find this Tao? By truly meeting yourself, she says, sitting on the cushion, washing the dishes, cleaning the floor, taking a shower. What transcends words or silence and is working through us in every aspect of life, in every single moment, in everything we are doing. What is that? Nothing keeps us from finding out about us, but ourselves. No, I'll read that again. Nothing keeps us from finding out, but ourselves. Meet yourselves directly, she says, without words or silence. Understand directly with your whole being, not just your head. I'm sure many have heard, many of us have heard Roshi say. Um, again and again, look directly. This this comes to us. This admonition comes to us from Basui, who um, said to have said this to his assembly as he was dying. So often we we rather look through our perceptions through the the filter of our, our preconceived ideas about ourselves and, and about others. Sashin's a wonderful place to um, drop this to some degree. In Sashin we can become more and more open, she goes on. Everything becomes more exquisite. The color of the sky, the feel of the material of our clothes, the taste of food, the smile on someone's face sitting in front of us. When you come to Doksan, we truly greet one another. Without words or silence, with vital contact, we just look. As, as our mind settles and, and uh, purifies, we can experience this. A vivid, vivid memory of the very first scene I did, which was um, with uh, Suzaki Roshi, who uh, through the late 70s and, and into the 80s um, come, came to New Zealand and I, I came back from 
here all fired up, having been to, um, uh, well, not here, from, from, from having gone to a workshop in Sweden with um, Rocha Kaplow, um, and went to a session that happened to be offering, offered um, just weeks after I got back, um, taught by Sasaki Roshi. And around about day four or five, um, one of the things we were served for um, dinner was plain steamed cabbage. And it was exquisite. Not not usually uh, all that fond of steamed cabbage, but somehow my mind was in a state where I could appreciate it. Through our practice, our ordinary life, ordinary things can become more more vibrant, more meaningful. And, and we, we crave meaning as human beings. But it's a, it's a meaning that's not, not, that can't be separated out from the thing itself. And, and it's important that we distinguish this, this process to, from, he, from hedonism. Hedonism is when we, we seek out um, pleasures. That we that we things we perceive to be pleasures, whereas this 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 sensitizing that comes with practice is, is much more about just a, our ability to appreciate what's right in front of us. You you could say that that hedonism is a is a kind of um, extractive attitude, like like the mining industry. We want to get something out of things rather than simply opening to what is there. It's, it's a, our um, ability to uh, just appreciate Ordinary things, um, the, the steam rising off a cup of tea, or or the greenness of the grass, or or the the sunlight falling on the floor, that that uh, where we can find uh, true happiness, not not the happiness that isn't reliant on on things being a certain way. There's a beautiful passage about um, true happiness that some of you been around a long time may have heard Roshi read and it's from a book called um, The Man of Many, Many Qualities The Legacy of the I Ching and it's a, it's a fascinating book which, which extracts passages from literature 
and matches them up with the, um, the, the hexagrams of the I Ching. And this one is, um, comes under number 58, Joy. And, and it's about this ability to, to um, live in a kind of quiet, um, self-contained state of joy. It is a hot day in June when the sun hangs still in the sky and there is not a whiff of wind or air nor a trace of clouds. The front and back yards are hot like an oven and not a single bird dares to fly about. Perspiration flows down my whole body in little rivulets. There is the noonday meal before me but I cannot take it for the sheer heat. I ask for a mat to be spread on the ground and lie down, but the mat is wet with moisture and flies swarm about to rest on my nose and refuse to be driven away. Just at this moment, when I am completely helpless, suddenly there is a rumbling of thunder and big sheets of black clouds overcast the sky and come majestically like a great army advancing to battle. Rainwater begins to pour down from the eaves like a cataract. The perspiration stops. The clamminess of the ground is gone. All flies disappear to hide themselves and I can eat my rice. Ah, is this not happiness? Having nothing to do after the meal, I go to the shops and take a fancy to a little thing. After bargaining for some time, we still haggle about a small difference in the price, but the shop boy still refuses to sell it. Then I take out a little thing from my sleeve, which is worth about the same thing as the difference, and give it to the boy. The boy suddenly smiles and bows courteously, saying, Oh, you are too generous. Ah, is this not happiness? I try to go through some things in some old trunks. I see that there are dozens or hundreds of IOUs from people who owe my family money. Some of them are dead and some still living, but in any case there is no hope of their returning the money. Behind people's backs I put them together in a pile and make a bonfire of them, and I look up to the sky and see the last trace of smoke disappear. Ah, is this not happiness? I wake up in the morning and seem to hear someone in the house sighing and saying that last night someone died. I immediately ask to find out who it is and learn that it is the sharpest and most calculating fellow in town. Ah, is this not happiness? (laughs) To cut with a sharp knife a bright green watermelon on a big scarlet plate of a summer afternoon. Ah, Is this not happiness? A poor scholar comes to borrow money from me, but is shy about mentioning the topic, and so he allows the conversation to drift along on other topics. I see his uncomfortable situation, pull him aside to a place where we are alone, and ask him how much he needs. Then I go inside and give him the sum, and after having done this, I ask him, 
Must you go immediately to settle this matter, or can you stay a while and have a drink with me? Ah, is this not happiness? To open the window and let a wasp out of the room. Ah, is this not happiness? There's a there's a a verse in the Mumonkan which um, deals with the same kind of thing. Hundreds of flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, and snow in winter. If your mind is not clouded with unnecessary things, no season is too much for you. Back to our text. By the third day of the retreat, the zendo is truly a zendo. Everyone can feel it. We move together as parts of a whole, sensitive, soft, alert. Sitting begins smoothly. Walking begins smoothly. We bow in unison. We chant powerfully together. We keep the zendo key clean and chop vegetables together. For the third time we sit together as the first light of day appears outside the windows. This morning Maureen reads from the Rinzai Roku. That's the record of Rinzai or Linji in, in Chinese. This is a quote from that. Bring to rest the thoughts of the ceaselessly seeking mind and you'll not differ from the Buddha. You want to know the Buddha? He is none other than you who sit before me listening to my discourses. We can all take to heart this, this teaching from Master Rinzai. Bring to rest the thoughts of the ceaselessly seeking mind. It's, it's, a, it's a ceaselessly seeking mind that... that um, burdens us with dukkha, specifically seeking for things to be other than they are. She also quotes Bodhidharma, who said to make the mind like trees and rocks. Facing the wall, we sit and listen, making our minds like trees and rocks. This is Maureen talking now. What prevents us from seeing clearly? What prevents us from being what we could be? There seems to be something in all of us connected with our egos, that resists opening up. This obstacle is very close, as close as our own shadow. Some of you may think that if you gave up everything, you would fall into some kind of abyss, 
and you're afraid of this, let go. Be genuinely, genuinely indifferent, indifferent to what becomes of it all and you will truly find a wonderful something there. It has always been there. You have never been without it. We come to this true freedom, this expansion to the whole universe, she says, through the discipline of Zazen, which she likens to a fountain. Small holes are bored through rock, and water is forced through the holes. When it comes through the top, it blooms. In the same way, out of our strong, formal posture, out of this deep silence, comes a truly free mind, a mind unattached to any form, free to expand, free to experience, free to change. No pretense, no self-consciousness. She quotes a haiku, When you're both alive and dead, how wonderful the smallest pleasure. It's an interesting image, this one of, a, of, of uh, water being, being um, forced through narrow openings and then forming a waterfall. There is, there, there is, can't deny that um, there is an element of pressure involved in doing sishin. We, we, we come together and, and our energies um, work on each other. It's a kind of, you could say, it's a kind of peer pressure where we, we rise up to um, levels greater than we might be able to go on us, on, get to if we were practicing on our own because of the, the concerted effort that we're making, because of the, the, the pooling of our energies and the, and the, um, the pressure created by the schedule and um, the, the discipline of sitting still round after round after round. This is, this is really an aspect of the power of limits, of placing limits. The way in which um, a particular verse form, like a sonnet of 14 lines and a particular rhyme, screen, rhyme scheme, creates, can create great poetry. When you're both alive and dead, how wonderful the smallest pleasure. So it's coming back to this, this, um, this notion of, of just appreciating the simple pleasures around us. Being both alive and dead means thoroughly dying to the, the um, self-obsessions of our small mind. Now the next few 
um, sections that we're looking at are um, come not from um, a Sashin situation, but from um, dialogues between the, the writer of this book, Lenore Friedman, and uh, Maureen Stewart. Lenora asks, I heard that at the last session you were doing all the cooking as well as zazen, giving interviews, dharma talks, flowing effortlessly from one thing to another. How I'd learn, how I'd love to learn how to do that. Um, I'm guessing that her sessions weren't 50 people. <laughs> so don't think that would be quite possible. Um, if one was cooking for 50 but but more likely it would be you know half a dozen or or 15 or so people and then yeah it could be possible to be the the the, the cook as well as the teacher actually and i think one or two of our very early sessions in Auckland um uh, i was dinner cook as well as as teaching and it was fine because cooking dinner was like cooking the evening meal. It was it was it was not so difficult. Um, but the the key is is one's attitude in doing all of that, um, and and seeing it all as as um, practice and teaching. Maureen replies here, Well, we don't learn that, Lenore. I think it happens. When you become really filled up with this, it just bubbles over into all these other activities. So the more you take in whatever it is, the wonderful thing that we're all talking about all the time, the more you give out. And the more you do that, the more energy comes. People were telling me I was doing too much, that I'd get tired. Not at all. One feeds the other. At the end of Sashin, I did not feel tired. Tired. I was happy to go home and get a good night's sleep, but the next morning I felt just as peppy as ever. There's no feeling of conflict. In the Zendo, cooking is just as important as giving a talk. And, and this is something that, that all, all the uh, people who have extra responsibilities can remind themselves of. That, that all the efforts that everybody makes um, contribute to, to the session and to everybody practicing in the session. Lenore says, being filled up and then letting go. It's like breathing, isn't it, Maureen? Exactly. You take it in and you give it out. And you take in just as much from concentrated cooking. If you're really present with whatever you're doing, it's the same thing, taking in, giving out. Lenore, there's what, there's, there is some way that efforting comes in here. Well, if you think that you're doing something, then there's a problem. If you get out of the way as much as possible, then there isn't so much problem. You can really feel that. You are letting it do you. This is, of course, basic to what I practiced as a musician. So being, in a sense, being the instrument and being played by the universe. Um, 
Lenore, the effort and the effortlessness, the practice, the discipline, and then the letting go of that. Absolutely, we are the instrument. The Dharma is playing us, exactly. It's playing everybody. Maybe some of us are out of tune, but as soon as you get the strings not too tight, not too loose, then it makes good music. And this, this image of, a, of a, an, a stringed instrument that's, that's tuned just right, not too tight, not too loose, comes from uh, a Pali Sutta, where the B- Buddha teaches um, a monk who's an ex-musician about how to find the right balance between, between effort and letting go. Not too tight, not too loose. If we're too tight, then we won't be able to sustain our effort. And if we're too loose, then basically no, nothing's happening. There's, there's, no, there's no music possible. Lenore then points out that um, three of the, of the different teachers that she talks to are actually musicians. And Maureen says, It's a very basic matter. Your body must be finely tuned in order to express something with it. And you have to do this every day, every, 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 every day, no exceptions, or you feel it. In other words, if you, you, you feel it if you don't practice. So musicians understand the importance of practice. We had been talking about practice, this is Lenore speaking, and I found myself wanting to ask her about a deep level of doubt that sometimes arises in me. What if this is all a sham and delusion? What if it's all empty form? Or worse, what if I'm doing it that way? What if I'm fooling myself and everyone else? What if it's all going to fall apart, dissolve? And now, knowing the answer to that, can I act from that place? Many of us can relate to some of these these questions that that she's asking. Maureen replies, You remember that the Buddha said, Don't take my word for this. Put no head above your own. Have your own experience. He, he, He makes this point in a, it's called the, I think it's the letter to the Kalamas, where this this group of villagers um, was saying, we get confused. We get taught. We get taught by different teachers come through, and one teaches this, one teaches us that. How do we um, how do we navigate that? And the Buddha said, basically, check it out for yourselves. Practice. See if it's something that is beneficial or not. Um, according to your own express, express experience, he al- he also mentioned 
um, checking out what the wise think of this or that, how they experience it, and take that into consideration too. The Buddha himself, as as, uh, Maureen mentions here, went through many um, doubts right up to his great awakening. You know about all the doubts, all the delusions that came and flew through the Buddha's head, just as with you and me, everyone. No one is excluded from this and shouldn't be. It's an important part of our experience. If you did not question... If you did not go down to the bottom and say, is this truly so, it would be very superficial, very superficial. We must say, what is this? What is this? And say it absolutely with every pore of our being. What is this? What is Mu? This is the great doubt we talk about. It is to be answered with your whole being not just with your intellect. And the more deeply you feel the doubt, according to some ancient texts, the greater the enlightenment. The more you plumb the depths of this, the more you discover. One balances the other. And to be honest is essential. To say, am I really doing this to the depths of my being, or am I just sitting here? This this. Uh, applies to all the practices, not just um, koan practice, which where there's this this teaching about great doubt. But whatever the practice we're doing, we have to be um, giving ourselves to it fully, as fully as we can in any given moment, and then as fully again in the next moment. Sometimes I think people can can feel scared about about feeling great doubt, getting into a state of great doubt, because we, we don't know where it will take us, what it will, what it will um, demand of us. And so maybe we, we, we distract ourselves or we step back from that, that sense of being on the edge of really throwing ourselves into the practice. We step back from the abyss and we may have to go up to that edge again and again and again before finally we are ready to just just trust ourselves in really deeply going into it. Even, even our, our not-so-great doubts our little doubts um, have a place if if we can if we can channel them if we can pour them all into our practice let them be the, the the driver of our practice all our all our limitations our our uh, perceived blockages. There's a there's a Rumi poem, which very beautifully talks about this matter. The number of uh, images. It's really it's really about um, not rejecting our doubts, 
not rejecting our, the suffering that we bring to practice and all the kinds of limitations that we, we have. This is how it goes. How does a part of the world leave the world? How can wetness leave water? Don't try to put out a fire by throwing on more fire. Don't wash a wound with blood. No matter how fast you run, your shadow more than keeps up. Sometimes it's in front. Only full overhead sun diminishes your shadow. But that shadow has been serving you. What hurts you blesses you. Darkness is your candle. Your boundaries are your quest. I can explain this, but it would break the glass cover on your heart, and there's no fixing that. You must have shadow and light source both. Listen and lay your head under the tree of awe. When from that tree feathers and wings sprout on you, be quieter than a dove. Don't open your mouth for even a coo-coo. In, in practice, we need to lie down under the tree of awe, under the tree of, of perplexity, of, of longing to be who we are fully, completely. Once we get to that that tree, we must be quiet, receptive, open. Deeply not knowing Darkness is your candle. Your boundaries are your quest. We, we need to, f- to find a way to hold these, these painful aspects of ourselves. not run from them.
So we left off in the text with um, Maureen Stewart saying that we we need to question whether we're doing our practice from the depths of our being or if we're just sitting there. And then Lenore asks, how can I do that without a teacher by myself? Maureen replies, moo after moo after moo after moo with your whole being. This is not a technique. It is a way of life. And then Lenore says, don't I have to test that and ask, am I plumbing this? Is my moo dot dot dot? Maureen says, no, don't ask that. Don't ask, do it. Do and see what happens. And then Lenore says, and when doubt comes up about my capacity to do this? Maureen says, it has nothing to do with your capacity, nothing at all. Your capacity is your capacity, and you use this capacity in all kinds of relative situations in your life. But this practice has to do with the absolute reality, not relative reality. So it has nothing to do with whether you are good, bad, or indifferent. In this respect, it has to do with plumbing the depths of this reality, Mu reality, God reality, Buddha nature reality. And that's in everybody. No matter what you can do physically, mentally, whatever it is, your spiritual reality is something else. It's in everybody, pure and unadorned. And we hang a lot of stuff on it. So what is this? What is this? Why have I clouded it up so much? How do I uncloud it? By being absolutely honest as you are doing and saying, let me strip down to my bare bones and see what's there. There is something wonderful there when you strip down to bare bones. One young woman came to me with this dream. She said, I dreamed that you gave me a beautiful pair of shoes and a photograph album. The album had pictures of me and in all of them I was naked. Wonderful. This is her Maureen now commenting. Wonderful, just shoes and naked. So it really is to not be afraid of our weaknesses, our delusions, our illusions, whatever they are. We all have them. But to have this ultimate bottom realization that there is something else there. I think in some curious way I always had that feeling without making any big bones about it. Whatever was going on around me if it was extremely difficult or painful or tumultuous, and there was a lot of that in my life, I always felt that there was some quiet inner place where everything was all right. Just get there, sit down, and take a deep breath. Just, just um, look at this, this dream, this simple dream of being given by the teacher a beautiful pair of shoes and a photograph album. Shoes are what enable us to walk on this earth. Um, We'll be miserable if our shoes don't fit. So we could see the shoes as being an image of our relationship to 
to the earth, to the ground. So even perhaps um, there's a hint here that, that the dream may be talking about our practice, our method, how we relate to ourselves and the universe. And then an album. Seeing, seeing ourselves stripped away. But again, as, as we were talking about yesterday, we could get these shoes from our teacher, but we still have to walk the road ourselves in our own way. Posture, Maureen believes, is absolutely basic to our practice and posture changes in people all the time. It's a quote from her. The reason it changes is that your practice deepens and your breathing becomes more subtle and more clear and it goes through your whole body. The body changes with each inhalation and exhalation. Posture is extremely important for that reason, if for nothing else. Basically, your posture is the expression of your Buddha nature. Absolutely. How clearly and with what feeling of reverence for your life you sit upon this cushion. It's a wonderful feeling to just sit and to take a deep breath and feel every pore of you come alive right out to the ends of your hair and your toenails and scalp and cheeks. Everything coming alive. It is imperative to have good posture for this experience. Otherwise, your breath cannot go through you. When instructing new people in Zazen, Maureen stresses a feeling of firmness, of feeling rooted to the ground. This is a practice on this earth, not out in space somewhere. You're right here on this wonderful planet. Your knees are solidly planted on the ground, or your feet if you're sitting in a chair. And from there you grow. Your spine is like the stem of a flower, your head like a blossom on top of it, and everything in wonderful, clear alignment. Then you regulate your breath. Let it fill you up. Let it slowly out. And then let your breath breathe you. Then let your posture do its expression of this, and that changes from day to day, minute to minute. And it should, if we remain some static form, that's not what it's all about. The, the, the big thing with, with um, our sort of ongoing... monitoring of our posture is uh, this, again it's about finding balance of, of making an effort without straining finding stability and, and uprightness whether we're sitting on the mat or in a chair um, 
in a way that is that is um, comfortable enough that we can sustain the practice. And and to sit with this this um, sense of, of of openness, of poise. It's that's um, where the alignment comes up. If we can if we can align our our spine um, well, then um, it can be almost effortless to sit up. And then we can have this the sense of of the spine being like stem of a flower. And then um, just finish up with Lenore's asking about Mu, which um, uh, Maureen Stewart had assigned to her um, very recently before this interview happened. Lenore, do you keep the koan in your mind? Maureen, the koan is filling up your whole body. Lenore, and the original question, does a dog have the Buddha nature? That has nothing to do with it, says Maureen. In each koan there are important words, mu and Buddha nature. That's what mu is, Buddha nature. So you are becoming filled up, completely becoming mu. You are it, but you are coming to realize it, not thinking, what is mu, what is mu? No. Have you got it? Lenore. Well, as much as I've got it, I've got it. So um, that that original question is there in the background, but but we don't need to um, uh, dwell on it. Rather, what we we do is we we boil the koan down to the nub, or what the Chinese call the the huado. Which you could say is like a shorthand for the for the for the question, and that the the key the key words in in the kaimu are mu and Buddha nature. Really ask when we ask mu or we investigate mu, what we're investigating is Buddha nature. What is that? What is it when we're walking down a corridor? What is it when we're sitting down at the table? What is it when we hear a blue jay outside? But the key the key point she makes here is 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 our moving towards becoming or becoming the breath if we're, if we're practicing the breath.
Well, our time is up. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow 